reading Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We are reading God's word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream made known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and so they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Thank you. You may have a seat. Cliffhanger there. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, Well, congratulations. It's July 1st. You made it through the first of four months of uh, fill in the blank. This is what we experience every summer. I was gone last week trying to get away from the heat. Uh, we were, I was with some friends of mine riding my bike in, uh, in Prescott and then up in Flagstaff, so it was good. It's good to be back, though. Uh, Luke is still away. Luke, our, our lead pastor and primary communicator, he's in uh, Colorado with his family trying to get away from the heat but not having a lot of success since the state is burning down around him. Um, but you can, you can pray for them. Uh, wanted to start us off today by, by looking at a key question, and the question is this. Uh, how do you respond when trouble interrupts your life and changes your plans? And uh, this is not foreign to us and our family. This is an email I wanted to read you. Uh, it it, it kind of accurately communicates what a lot of our life is like right now, and many of you with young kids can probably relate. This is an email Christy sent to me three years ago. So we've got five kids now. We had three at the time. At the time, uh, they were four, three, and almost two. And I, the, the, the heading is, how you doing? I wrote her an email, asked her how she was doing. She said, since you're asking... 
I had one of the worst afternoons I've had in a very long time. Worst is all in capitals. Molly and Danielle and I were going to pick up lunch and go to the park, but the timing didn't work out right, and we ended up all trying to eat in the commons. That's uh, the, the bookstore and, and coffee shop that they have at the Gilbert campus. Uh, the line was really long, and poor Kate was the only one there, so the kids were hungry and antsy. Bethany and Harper had some manageable behavior issues, but Benjamin was a complete wreck. He cried, whined, threw his food the whole time. I quickly realized this was not going to work, and I should just go home. But we already had our food all spread out, and so I just uh, tried to eat as fast as I could. She said, I ended up eating by myself with Benjamin. The girls were running all over the commons at another table because I couldn't fit all the kids with me and Molly and Danielle and all their girls. So her plans were to go have a nice lunch with her friends. Trouble comes. Um, She said, then shortly after... Uh, I moved to another table with Benjamin so I could actually, she, she, she moved to another table with Benjamin so I could actually talk to my friends. He threw his cr- cup across the table, hit the edge of my plate, catapulting the rest of my lunch across the floor. To make matters worse, she said, the commons was full of women's ministry women watching everything fall apart and they were all giving me these sympathetic looks because it looked so pathetic. Uh, she says, I did my best to clean up the huge mess that we Benjamin had made, and I came home in tears. Chrissy doesn't cry very often at all. Um, She said, I had to spank Harper for not coming to me in the commons, and when Bethany asked me why I was so sad, I started crying again, and then Harper burst into tears because she was so upset that I was crying, and then Bethany asked me if I still loved her. (laughs) Sigh. So she goes on and says, she apologized for the mean voice of the girls, reassured them, put them down for a nap, took took a snooze, but she said, I'll definitely need a hug when you get home. Um, and this is, this is not uncommon in our house, minus the Christy crying thing. That is uncommon. But it's not uncommon for us to encounter trouble in our lives. In fact, John uh, 16, 33, Jesus, Jesus tells us something. He said, this world, in this world, you will have trouble. It's a promise. And trouble can mean a lot of different things. It can come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. It can be uh, trouble in the early years with parenting. Uh, it can be, you know, we, we laugh and have a good time with this. It, it can be serious. It can be illness. It can be sickness or death. Um, and, and that's what I, I, want, I want us to look at today as we go through this story in the book of Daniel. We're in this series entitled Faithful, which is about God's faithfulness to us in times of trouble. And we, we look at two particular men who are faithful to God as well in times of significant trouble. We started out six weeks ago looking at the life of Joseph. We spent four weeks there at the, at the end of the book of Genesis looking at the story of his life, the trouble he experienced, the faithfulness of God um, through it. And then we we started, we jumped 1,200 years uh, later than Joseph. Now we're in the book of Daniel, around 600 B.C., and we're looking at how God answers in response to Daniel in times of trouble. Josh did a great job last week uh, setting up the context. The historical context for this is... uh, is, is pretty interesting and important to understand before we get to the, the actual text of our story. In 931 B.C., about 600 years before Daniel um, finds himself in exile in Babylon, King Solomon reigned over, over the, the, the kingdom of Israel, and it was at its height, its peak in glory and fame throughout the world. Well, when Solomon died, the kingdom divided, and the ten northern tribes uh, took their own king, and the southern two, Benjamin and Judah, took, took their king. And basically, with very few exceptions, throughout the next 300 years, both kingdoms just didn't follow God. 
They, they went after idols. They didn't uh, worship him. They didn't follow the, the rules that he had put in place for their good. And so in 722, the northern ten tribes were taken captive by Assyria. And then 120 years later, Babylon came in and, and really executed God's judgment on them. That, that he had proclaimed. One thing people don't realize, however, is that Daniel lived in a, in a unique period in the history of that southern kingdom of Judah. He actually lived in a period of uh, revival. King Josiah reigned when, when Daniel was born, and for the, about the first nine or ten years of his life, 2 Kings 23 tells us about King Josiah. It says, before him, speaking of Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Daniel had a unique opportunity to, to, to grow up in a pretty good pretty good place. He was of noble birth. Um, he was of the king's court, very, very possibly a part of the royal family. Um, he was powerful, popular, good-looking, talented. We know that from chapter 1 where it gives the list of the type of men that the, the king of Babylon brought to Babylon with him. You know, he was, he was uh, the homecoming king, the captain of the football team, chess club champion, and valedictorian. I mean, he was, things were looking up. When he uh, was growing up, there was kind of limitless potential and opportunity. And then uh, King Josiah dies when he's 9 or 10. And a few years later, everything falls apart. The, the, the strongest, most powerful man in the world shows up at his doorstep and, and takes him literally from everything dear to him. Takes him from his family, his country, his place of nobility, his reputation, his power, his dreams for the future are all dashed. And so the question that I want us to examine today is, is your faith deep enough to sustain you in times of great trouble? Jesus promises we will have trouble. And so is your faith deep enough to sustain you in times like these? Uh, like it was for Daniel. Let's open our Bibles and take a look at the story. We're going to work through this passage, so if you have your Bible, it would be great to, uh, to open it up and follow along with me. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, about two years after Daniel's been in exile in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled. Interesting, there's that word trouble again. And his sleep left him. Now, right, right off the bat, at the beginning of this story, Daniel has a few things in mind that he wants to communicate with us. Um, the, the theme of the book of Daniel is evident in this verse, and you'll see it all throughout this series as we study it. God's true kingship contrasted with inferior earthly kings. God is the true king. Nebuchadnezzar, although he's the most powerful man in the world, although he removed Daniel from his family, and, and it, it really, at his word, people move, it, he's not God. He's not the same. And Daniel points out he was troubled and he couldn't sleep. I think sleep is an interesting gift from the Lord. It's a great equalizer across humanity. Regardless of who you are, how much power you have, wealth, influence, um, good looks, might, whatever it may be, you're going to sleep about a third of your life. You're going to spend every day unconscious for hours upon hours, completely vulnerable, completely weak. And that's a little gift from God. It's a little picture of the reality that we are not the true king. There's no human being on this planet that can truly represent 
the kingship of God. Uh, so so that's, a, that's a pretty cool thing. And right off the bat, he, he draws some contrast. He shows us Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, is troubled. He can't sleep. He's a temporary king. He's fallible. Contrasted with God, who's an all-powerful sovereign, you'll see this throughout this story and this whole, this whole series, he's never troubled. He never sleeps. He's eternal. And because Daniel grew up in a time where Israel was faithful, he knew the scriptures. He had been exposed to the Psalms and sung great songs about God like this one here in Psalm 121. He, speaking of God, watches over you, will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And I believe this was in Daniel's mind as he began to record this story and he found comfort and peace in the midst of a a time of significant trouble. So let's continue on here in verse 2 of chapter 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans be summoned to the king to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And Melissa did a great job reading this. Basically, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I've got a problem. I need some information. My heart is troubled within me. And so he goes out and he pulls in all the wisdom that all the world can offer, right? He, he pulls in uh, the people who studied the stars and understood the universe, He pulls in the scientists and the psychologists and the religious professionals. And he pulls in the economists and all all the people, the professors, all the wisdom the world has to offer. And he says, I need you to do something for me. I need you to tell me something that's troubling me. See, I've had this dream and I need you to interpret it. And they say, great, we can do that. We're we're good at that. So tell us a dream, we'll give you the interpretation. He says, well, actually, it's not going to be that easy because I don't want you to lie to me. This is a big deal, and it's really troubling me and my spirit. So you need to tell me what the dream is and the interpretation. You guys are the wisest people in in the whole world. Do, Do your thing. And they say, well, we can't do that. That's a job for the gods. We can't do that. And what I want us to see from, from this small exchange here is that the wisdom of this world is insufficient to deal with the things that trouble us deep down. Nebuchadnezzar was finding that out in this exchange, and it made him angry. Now, he was already cranky and sleep-depraved, right? So he, he says, well, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. Uh, what's troubling you today? Where do you go for answers in times of trouble? Do you go where Nebuchadnezzar went to the best the world has to offer? Maybe it's the latest self-help book. Maybe it's uh, Dr. Phil or, or Oprah or Facebook. Facebook is an interesting place to go, but a lot of people seem to do that. Um, you see, Daniel was writing in a, in a unique time, and he wanted to address the trouble that he and his fellow Israelites were experiencing. He, he wanted them to see that the wisdom of the world will not provide answers to the questions they're asking. When we're in trouble, uh, we ask questions, questions that human wisdom can't answer, questions like, why did this happen? Is God in control? Does he care? What will become of us, and what should I do? These are questions that, that, that human wisdom can't address. And so here comes some more trouble. Let's continue to read here in verse 12. Because of this, so because they weren't able to give the king what he wanted, the wisdom he needed, the king was, was angry and very furious. I like how they use that modifier, very, there. 
just not just furious, he's very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the, the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So we've got more trouble here. Not only has Daniel's life been completely upended and changed against his will, out of his control, now, after he's been in Babylon for about two years, the captain of the guard shows up at his door and, and he knocks. Daniel opens the door. He says, Daniel? I said, yeah? We're here to tear you limb from limb. And, and we're going to destroy your household too. So anybody living with you, friends, family, we're going to have to kill them as well. What, what must have gone through Daniel's mind at this moment? I mean, it's been a bad few years. He's thinking, everything I've hoped in, everything, everything that I trusted in, the, the plans that I had made for me have been completely changed. But you know what? I'm, I'm getting used to this Babylonian thing. I'm, I'm, I'm liking the vegetables. I'm figuring things out. The palace isn't a bad deal. And I, I, think, I, I think I know what the Lord has for me. He's put me in this place where I'm going to have some influence. I'm kind of part of the wise men clique in Babylon. And I'm sure God's going God's to do something great, and I'm going to be able to do something amazing for his kingdom. But wait a minute. That's all... All that hope, all that is gone now. This guy just showed up. He's going to kill me and all my buddies. There's zero hope at this moment in the world. Daniel has no chance to survive. He's out of options. Have you ever been in this place personally when, when you're just out of options? Where it seems like thing after thing, the dominoes keep falling in your life, things are cascading out of order, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Has God ever brought you to a place of, of, of no hope? How do you flinch in times of trouble? Do you flinch with faith or do you flinch with fright? Well, let's, let's take a look and see uh, what Daniel does in verse 16. Then Daniel replied, Ah! Right? Is that what he said? Did he flinch with fright? No. No, he didn't. I just want to see if you were awake. Uh, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, uh, why is this decree of the, the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Prudence and discretion. That's not what you would expect when, when death literally shows up at your door knocking, right? How is this possible? When I, think of, when I think of people who are calm under pressure, do you know people who just like when, when the... Maybe it's like a, um, an EMT or a firefighter or something. When things get really crazy, they just, they just everything slows down. They get calm. They have a, they have a deep ballast in their, in their lives that, that keeps them grounded, that keeps them right side up when, when the waves of, of, of life are crashing in. 
Well, um, when I think of people who say calm under pressure, and, and you know when I preach, I have to have at least one cycling analogy every time I preach. So um, I, I think of uh, this particular moment in the greatest sporting event in the history of the world, which, by the way, started yesterday, the Tour de France, 2012 Tour de France. You all have it, right? You all upgraded your TV package, paid the extra 30 bucks a month to get NBC Sports Network, and you're on the edge of your seats. Okay, well, I'm glad you're with me. Um, so... In 2005, Lance Armstrong, who's the greatest cyclist to ever live, never mind all the doping allegations, we'll just forget that, um, ha- there was this incredible moment in stage nine in the Tour de France, and I know you all know it because you've seen it, you're, you're like, you're locked in, but I'm going to tell you anyway, he's coming down, he's coming out, Tour de, Tour de France is a 20-stage race, he's coming down this mountain at the end of this race, right, and he's kind of leading the pack, and there's a guy right in front of him who falls, and they're descending at like 35 plus miles an hour on really skinny tires, which if you've ever tried that, it's pretty scary. And, uh, and he has no options. This is a moment of trouble, right? Trouble. How's he going to respond? Most guys would lock up and just go flying over the handlebars and be road, roadkill. Um, but not Lance. In, in a moment of calm and, and, and uh, prudence and discretion, he pulls off to the left, goes off the road, into a field, down a hill, because the, because the course is curving around, jumps a, like a little ravine ditch, gets back on the road, and is back with the same group he was riding with a minute later. Now, that's, that's pretty impressive. All right, you can YouTube this. It's crazy cool. He, went, he goes on to win his fifth or sixth tour in a row after that. But he, that's, that's calm. That's calm in times of, of pressure. So there you go, cycling analogy of the day. Um, Dan, Daniel responds like a man that, who is not without hope. And so we want to drive, drive down to that. What, what is this that Daniel has that though trouble was deep in his life, his hope or his faith was deeper still? It's interesting that he gets, he gets this message and then he goes to the king and promises an answer when he doesn't have one. Interesting. Daniel has a deep faith. That's a potentially dangerous move, not that being torn from limb from limb is, isn't already very dangerous, but now the focus is on him, the pressure is on him and his household to deliver. So he goes to the king and says, hey, give me some time. I, I, I can do this. And presumably from the text, the king gives him like a day. He's, he's sick and not sleeping. So let's look at verse 17, and let's see what Daniel does now. Pressure's on here. Then Daniel went to his house and made this matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions may not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. All right, this is key. The moment of trouble is at hand. The pressure is on. It seems like things are hopeless. What does Daniel do? Well, he does one really important thing and two subpoints underneath that. He asks for help. Now, that, that might seem obvious, but we live in, in an interesting time in society, and, and as, I, I, as a pastor, I get to see this a lot. People don't want to ask for help when they need it. it it's shocking to me how many folks I'll sit down with and will we'll unpack the story of the trouble in their life. And we'll go back years and we'll say, well, who was, who was helping you then? Like, before this thing got massively out of control, who was helping? Oh, we, we didn't want to bother anyone. 
Well, you needed help. Daniel asks for help, and he does it in two ways. First, he seeks the help of his friends. He has a community of faith, of like-minded people that that share his, his values and his beliefs. They can come around him and support him and lift him up in times of difficulty. And then secondly, he seeks the help of God. He goes to the one who can truly help him in this time. And he does that through prayer. Daniel knows exactly what to do. He responds with prudence and discretion. The text seems to indicate he's not even, he's not even flustered. He's not even shaken. See, he's got these systems in place. He has a living and active relationship with God, so to go to him in prayer is not, is not a strange thing. It's not a foreign thing. And he has a community that he does life with. So to go to them and ask for support, that's not, that's not foreign to him. Psalm 46 says this, and Daniel would have known this. He would have grown up singing this song, most likely. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Daniel knew exactly what he needed to do. He knew and trusted in the character of God. He had a community of friends to go to, and he went to the Lord in prayer. So I want to ask you this. Do you ask for help in times of trouble? And if so, who do you ask? Who do you go to? Do you go to people who are in the same situation as you are, who don't have any really, I mean, they're not further along in the, in the process. When we have parenting trouble, we don't go to our friends who have kids the same age as ours. We go to people like the Greebies who've done it, and it's like, wow, like, look at how their kids turned out. If we could be half that good, we'd be happy, right? You go to people who, who have wisdom, who have knowledge, and understand the scriptures, who love the Lord. We, we need to ask for help, and we need to do it more often. I, I find this personally in my life. Um, I seem to go in, like, cycles of, of peace and then, like, turmoil. And what I find is when I get in a kind of a, a season of turmoil, uh, God will stop me because he'll allow things to get worse and worse and worse and more and more out of control until I remember, oh, yeah, I need to ask for help. I don't like to do that. As a guy, I don't like to do that. Have you asked for the, the Lord for help? Recently, I'm going to give you a, just a couple things that, that maybe, uh, maybe will help you answer that question. So how many of you on Thursday, regardless of your political views or affiliation, how many of you went right to the Lord and asked for help when the Supreme Court ruled on Thursday? How many of you uh, asked for help when your kids were throwing a fit in the car on the way to church today? How many of you asked for help when, you're, when your teenager wants to date someone scary or do something stupid? How many of you ask for help when your balance sheet is out of balance? Or when you have an opportunity to stand up for your faith in a hard situation? Or someone you love is hurting? See, there's trouble all over. Jesus promised we'd have trouble. We need to ask for help. We ask for help from the community that, that God has surrounded us with and from him, God himself. Um, Daniel 6, we'll get, this, we'll get to this later, but Daniel 6 said that Daniel prayed three times a day. It was routine for him. This communion with God um, was not something that he just, just uh, depended on in times of trouble. He was, he was there every day. So it was a routine. It was a flinch. We used that word earlier. He flinched faith, not fright. Let's continue uh, in verse 19 here. Let's see what God does. 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Big sigh of relief, right? Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for, to, for you have given me wisdom and might. And now you have made known to me what, what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Well, big sigh of relief for Daniel. God gives him the answer. This is the key. This would, this would be like if there was a, an ep- epidemic infection and you were, a, you were a scientist. You found the cure what would you do? You've got that information. First thing I would do is I'd be out of the door on my way to Nebuchadnezzar. Knock, 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 knock. Hey, king, got what you need. I got it. And I'm thinking as I'm going there, this is it. This is my chance. This is my chance to get ahead. The king's going to think I'm all that. I'm going I'm to advance in, in the kingdom. This is it. But that's not what Daniel does. Daniel, unlike me, has his priorities straight. Daniel responds with gratitude to God. See, Daniel understood that before he would bow before an earthly king, there was a greater king that he needed to go before and bow in, in, in thanksgiving and praise. He would go to God first. God was his first priority. Gratitude it was his first priority before God. And then he responds with praise before God. And we, we don't have time to go into it now, but I've had the opportunity to study biblically the doctrine of praise. Um, it's always supported by these two realities, who God is and what he's done. And you can see that in Daniel's prayer. He prays the character of God and thanks him for being the one to whom belong wisdom and might. He says God reveals the deep and hidden things and light dwells with him. He understands the character of God because he's made a habit, a flinch of being in the presence of God in his word, experiencing him through community. And then he responds with what God has done. He says, I thank you that you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel understands the character of God, and it shapes his response in this time of trouble. All right, let's go on. Chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch. This is after praising the Lord, spending time thanking him. Uh, to whom, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king this interpretation. He goes on and, and tells the king, here, let, let's continue reading. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, this is, this is 26, uh, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? 27, Daniel says, and he answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. 
Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. This is incredible. Daniel has an opportunity to, to literally like, buy the winning lottery ticket. He can sign, he's got a blank check in front of him. He can sign his name and sign whatever amount he wants. And he says, no credit here. All the credit goes to God. Daniel's gratitude results in humility before man. That's the next principle we're going to look at. It's truly amazing when you think the most powerful man in the world has offered riches and might and wealth, and Daniel gets it anyway. But he, he's not forcing the issue, and that's not even his goal. It's not his desire. It's that God would get praise. How often do you get credit for something great that you've done, that God has done through you, and you forget to thank him? This happens to men in particular when we think of our jobs. Uh, we think, well, we get paid to do a job, and so when it's done well, we feel like it's, we've done a good job. I mean, bring a little praise this way, right? I, the band does a phenomenal job every week, and don't, don't you think guys, they're doing a great job today? Yeah. And, and every now and then, somebody will say something nice, and it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to remember this is, this is all what God has done. Every, every person, almost every person you see working in this church on Sundays is a volunteer that by the grace of God have decided to, to invest their, some, you know, their time and their energy in, in creating something that, that hopefully will draw us closer to him. But man, for us to take credit, for the leadership to take credit, that would be a, a huge disservice to, to, to what the Lord has done. Um, it, it's easy to take credit for things that really are gifts of the Lord. And, and it sheds light on Daniel's past, uh, in, in my opinion. When you think of what he's been through, um, he, he's clearly lived through a lens of gratitude with a heart of gratitude instead of a heart of expectation. Let me tell you what I mean. We're going to look at uh, this idea of gratitude versus entitlement. Um, this is particularly, this distinction is particularly important in our society today. You're going to hear more and more discussion about things that you're owed. People feel that you're entitled to whatever it might be. I mean, the, the, the thing in the, the media right now is health care. It's a, it's a, people are using the words like, it's a, it's a God-given right to health care. You're entitled to uh, a pension or benefits or whatever it might be. Well, if we live with a, we, if we live with a heart of entitlement, it can be very, very devastating. Um, a heart of gratitude responds differently when God gives something and when he takes something away than a heart of entitlement. Let me show you. A heart of gratitude uh, responds like this. When God gives, just like God gave the, the, the dream and its interpretation to Daniel, a heart of gratitude responds with thanksgiving, with praise, and with humility. It's just what we're watching here. A heart of uh, gratitude, when God takes something away, though it's painful, it responds with submission, worship, and faith. And that word worship, again, we can't get into it, but it's closely related to the idea of submission before the Lord because a heart of gratitude remembered that it wasn't theirs to begin with. It wasn't a right or an entitlement that they were due justly. It was a gift of God's grace. Let's look at the heart of entitlement here. 
I would say this characterizes most of uh, the people in our culture and probably most of us in this room, if we're honest. When the Lord gives, we boast. We call our friends, hey, did you hear what, what I got or what, what we did? Um, there's pride. It builds your own kingdom, right? There's selfishness. And when the Lord takes away, there's anger and insecurity and doubt. I had a friend who lived his whole life uh, up into his mid-twenties, um, seeking the Lord and doing the right thing in church. He, he grew up in, through high school and college, kind of denying the temptations of the world and, and, and really trying to stick with what the Lord had, had, uh, had called him to. He read his Bible every day. He led worship at his church a lot. He actually he even preached every now and then. And, and he, he did it all with this belief that if I, if I do what God wants, then I'm entitled to this particular vision of my life. And it all revolved around finding the perfect mate, the perfect spouse, getting married and living happily ever after. And so uh, when he was 26, 27, he met, he met somebody and thought, this is the one. This is what I've, this is what I've been working towards. And he, he meets her and falls head over heels in love with her and um, real quickly just kind of starts building his life around her. Gave her access to his bank accounts, Gave her, put, it, put her name on the deed of their house and stuff. And not, not married yet, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, I lose track of this guy for a few months. I come back, and I, I see him, and he's just, he's just miserable. And what happened is this, this gal was a crook, and she took him for, like, tens of thousands of dollars. She headed out. She took off. And he was devastated because he felt that God, he was angry at God. He said, God. God, I did everything right. Why would you do this to me? He was living life with a heart of entitlement, not a heart of gratitude. How many of us respond that way when we experience trouble? God, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. We need to cultivate a heart of, of gratitude, a heart like um, the Owens. I don't know if you know Todd and Heather Owens, their story. Uh, it's actually told on the Redemption blog. I don't know if you've, you've visited the website. We've got a blog, and right now we're, we're telling stories of, of folks that go to Redemption Church. You know, Redemption's bigger than the Gateway Campus here. We have four campuses, soon to be a few more here in the next few months, and we want to get to know each other. We believe God moves powerfully through story, and so um, we're sharing stories of what God has done through people. And if you know the Owens, they, they've, they've attended here since before we were Redemption Church, and two months uh, Two years ago, excuse me, uh, they went through a time of deep, deep trouble in their lives. Uh, they were pregnant with their second, a daughter, and uh, in a routine exam, uh, she was diagnosed with a terrible disease that was terminal. Um, and we watched and we cried and we rallied around them in community and in prayer with the Lord as, as God brought them through that difficult season. But, you know, they responded with a heart of gratitude. Gratitude for the, the time, though it was extremely short, that they had with their little girl, and the gratitude for what they knew awaited them in the future. That's what Jesus calls true living, living with faith in him. And so I want to challenge you as you respond to the things that come in and out of your life, good and bad, be a person motivated with a heart of gratitude. Let's continue on here. Uh, verse 31 
we get the dream. And Daniel, I'm not going to read us through this, but Daniel explains the dream. Uh, he says basically there's this statue, and it's made of all these different kinds of precious metal. And uh, the statue represents four great kingdoms that will come. And then at the end of the dream, there's this rock, and he describes it as a rock that's hewn out by no human hand. It comes flying into the picture, hits the statue on the feet, obliterates the thing, and then this rock grows into a great mountain. Sounds like a scary dream. Anybody ever had a dream like that? I, I, things like, you ever dream about something that just grows and grows and grows and feels like it's kind of like taking over? That is pretty scary. So I, I, I uh, at least I've had that dream. So I, I can relate to what Nebuchadnezzar might be feeling. But um, then he interprets the dream. And that's what I want to direct our attention to in verse 44. Daniel says, in the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of the kingdoms, all of these kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. What we learn in this passage is that Daniel had a secret as well. The king wasn't the only one with this secret. Daniel knew uh, something greater, and it's what sustained him through this time of intense trouble. Daniel lived by faith in the promise of the true kingdom. See, that stone that destroyed the kingdoms of this world, one of which Daniel was living in at the time, that stone represented Jesus Christ, this stone that the builders rejected that had become the cornerstone of the greatest kingdom that ever will reign and and, and is reigning today. And he knew, Daniel lived with faith, that that kingdom would grow and grow and grow and grow and he would not be left out. Uh, Daniel had grown up as we talked about, during this time of revival in Jerusalem, and he had heard about the promises God had made. He had heard about the promise God made to Adam in the garden and the promise he made to Noah after the flood, the covenant or promise he made with Abraham and Canaan and David in Jerusalem. He had sung it in the Psalms growing up and heard his parents talk of it around the dinner table. He heard it from the lips of the prophets, and he experienced it as he acted out the festivals in different, different um, forms that the Lord had prescribed as he was living as a, as a Jewish boy growing up. He had a strong faith in the promise of the true kingdom. The future is an interesting thing. Um, there are thing there are, the, the future has, has a strange ability to, to invoke excitement, and fear in, in people. You can, you, it, can, it can make you really, really excited. You've got a, I've got a, um, you know, a vacation coming up, and it, it's an exciting thing. Or the, the ideas of the future, you know, the unknown can, can invoke fear. Uh, it, it, it invokes worry. Worries like, will I make enough money to retire? Will my kids be safe and happy? I, I don't know. You know, I could wake up tomorrow, and who knows what could happen? Will my loved ones be okay? Will I lose my job? Will this guy ever stop talking? You don't know. Uh, the future is uncertain, and with uncertainty, there, there comes fear and this feeling of risk. The markets even respond to uncertainty in, in the future. Well, when worries like this, which are very serious, are confronted with the reality of the future kingdom of God, we have, we have a great hope. 
In fact, Paul says that in light of, of, of what Christ, who Christ is and what he's doing and will do, that the, all these things are light and momentary affliction, even extremely difficult things compared to the eternal weight of glory that is ours in Christ. See, our hope is, is even different than Daniel's. Daniel believed in the hope of a future Messiah and a future kingdom that was to come. We know the true Messiah. Jesus Christ, he was here, he, he lived and died uh, death in our place and rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. We don't have to wonder about the future. And he came and brought with him, with him uh, a kingdom. We live by faith, faith in the presence of the true kingdom, which is the next slide there, there it is. Daniel lived by faith in the promise. We live by faith in the presence of the true kingdom. Jesus said this when he came. Mark 1.15, he said, the time is fulfilled. It's here, guys. We've been talking about this for 2,000 plus years. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, just like that rock that filled the king's dream, Jesus established a kingdom that will never end and will grow and grow and grow and fill the earth. Matthew 13 is a great chapter that talks about the kingdom of God and its nature and how it continues to grow. And one day he will make all things new. He will take away, um, there will be no more crying or pain or tears, and he will redeem and restore all things. Daniel had this great hope of a future kingdom. We have the hope of the reality of the present kingdom. For goodness sakes, we're here in Queen Creek, Arizona, 200 people in this room worshiping the Lord, something that started 2,000 years ago with 11 guys. And look at how God has permeated the earth with his kingdom. It's not done. He's got more that he's doing, but we have, we have a great hope. And so in conclusion, I want to I answer the question we started with. How did Daniel keep his faith in times of deep trouble? How did he respond with faith? Though the, 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 time, the trouble was deep and heavy, his faith was deeper still. Well, it was two things. First, he knew the true king. He had a relationship with the true king. He didn't just have a, a mental knowledge or understanding. He actively pursued God. And he did this in three ways. He maintained godly friendships, that's biblical community. He understood God's character. He knew the Bible. And he experienced God personally through prayer. We see that it was a lifestyle for him. He spent every day pursuing and knowing God. And then secondly, not only did Daniel know the true king, he lived in the true kingdom. He knew the story of the world, the true story of the world, the story of creation, God who created lovingly a perfect place for his people, of, of the fall when Adam sinned and, and cascaded us into this, this waterfall of trouble that washes over every life and every human that will ever face, uh, that will ever breathe life on this planet. He, he believed in redemption the redemption that Christ would bring, the future Messiah in his day, and he believed in the res restoration of the full kingdom, fully realized the Messiah on the throne, all things made new and right. See, Daniel occupied his mind and his thoughts with the true story of the world. And I don't know about you, but what I find is if I, if I listen to the media too long or, or whatever it might be, whatever other influence is out there, I begin to believe another story. I begin to believe a story that tells me that I'm the king of my 
universe and that I need to uh, buy things and perform in front of people and, and establish my, my throne and my rule. Um, if I'm not careful, I begin to, to hear this other story, that whether it's a story based in fear about the future of our country and what's all this, what's all this political stuff mean, or a, a story of hope of, hey, just, just do your best and try your hardest and, and you'll, you'll have a happy life. That's not the true story. The story is written in the pages of Scripture. It's something that Daniel knew, and it's what, it's what grounded him in times of deep trouble. He knew the true king. He knew uh, he lived in the true kingdom. And so my challenge to us as, as we leave is, is the words of Jesus again in Mark 1.15. Uh, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's in our midst. Repent and believe the gospel. We need to daily turn our focus on the truth. We need to pursue the king, and we need to believe what he's done. He's established his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you uh, that you give us a deep faith. God, you are, you are faithful to us in times of trouble, and so we can believe and trust in you. God, thank you that we can know you, the true king, we can know you through community. We can understand your character through the Bible. We can experience you personally. And we can know the true story of the world and live in the true kingdom that you've established and are growing every day. God, we pray and desire that that kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, keep us faithful until that time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew. Um, well, now we respond as a church. Um,